Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Today in the StoryCraft Cafe, we have an author legend, Mark Helprin, who has published for decades and in multiple genres. We talk all about it and we touch a little bit on one of my all-time favorites in my top five favorite books of all time, Winter's Tale. This is an amazing uh, chat that we have with Mark. We had some audio problems. There was a little bit of echo that we were hearing across the line. I'm going to do my very best to edit that out and reduce as much distraction as possible. But if you're hearing a little odd audio stuff, my apologies. We had to do the best we could. Stay tuned now for our interview with Mark Helperin. We are live in the StoryCraft Cafe. I am your host, Hank Garner, and today I am super excited to have Mark Hilpern on the show with me. Mark has a fantastic, amazing new book. It's called The Oceans and the Stars. There is a pre-release copy that I uh, have been so fortunate to get to read uh, it publishes this October and this is a book that you definitely don't want to miss uh, welcome to the show Mark thank you I'm very glad to be here I'm excited to have you Mark um, I have to start our conversation by saying that Winter's Tale is one of my top five favorite books of all time. Um, it has meant so much to me over the last couple of decades, and uh, it's such an honor and privilege to get to speak with you today. Well, uh, thank you. Let me ask you a question. How old are you? I am 51. I'll be 52. Okay. See, that that's very interesting because... I'm 76, and I wrote that. I wrote, I came out with Winter's Tale in 1983 when I was uh, 40, uh, nearing 50. So you were quite young then. You, were, you yes. must have been in 1983. How old were you? I was 12, uh, almost 13. Well, you see, that's a, it influenced you as a, as a young child. Or yeah. I don't know when you read it, but yeah. obviously it's from your youth. Yeah, I, I actually discovered it um, a, a little later. I was probably in my twenties when I discovered it, and and then the the film you know came along later, and it's a it's a completely different animal. But um, you know, the, yes, yes, it's a completely different animal. And now you should, your perhaps your listeners should know that when you sign a movie contract, I have a thing which is called, and I shall I shall illustrate it a clawback, which means that if you uh, speak to the press and you are the press in this instance and you and you make derogatory comments about the movie, they will pull back the money that they gave you. So that's just as a point of information. But let us uh, be content with the uh, judgment that the movie was a completely different animal. 
Yeah, it's yeah. uh, it, it is not that the movie is terrible per se. Um, it's different. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you, Mark. I said, Woof. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, um, you know, um, I, 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 there, this was the dog outside, and I was trying to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I like to start uh, conversations with a, a fun question sometimes. And uh, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? When I was in third grade, uh, my third grade teacher, who was the daughter of uh, the uh, Wilson Secretary of War. Now, this, this, these are people, this is a woman who was born in the 19th century for sure. And uh, the, the woman who ran the school was one of the illegitimate daughters of General Philip Sheridan, the Civil War Cavalry General. Her name was uh, Sarah Sheridan. Sheridan had a lot of illegitimate daughters. Anyway, uh, Miss Daniels, my third grade teacher, took me aside and had me dictate stories to her. Uh, and she wrote them down in, in third grade teacher's uh, handwriting and then sent them home with me. And uh, Simon and Schuster offered me a uh, two-book contract. <laughs> truly, um, one for a novel, a children's novel, which would have been simply uh, plagiarizing more or less Stuart Little, and the other for a uh, history, children's history of Abraham Lincoln, that were to be published by Golden Book. But my father refused to allow this because he's because my mother had been a child actress and had been ruined by that kind you know by being uh so uh as a as as a child my father wanted to protect me and he said no don't do that but i always told stories and i i think i knew that i was going to be a writer uh, probably from that age um and part of it is if you can't, if you think that you're not qualified for anything else, that's what you, that's what you just do. Yeah. I can't really do anything else uh, because I, I'm not very good with people. So. Well, you have had a, had a story, story. Um, uh, career path, if you will. You, you have been a writer for a number of decades and you've collected life experiences uh, along the way. And your new book, The Oceans and the Stars, uh, I think I heard you read on your website that this was a book that you had wanted to write for quite a while, but you felt like you had not um, earned the life experience. Those are my words. Um, but talk a little bit, about, if you will, about the need for a writer to gather experience to be able to tell uh, some of these interesting Sure. Uh, I, I go into that, what you mentioned in great detail in my website, which is amazing that I have a website given how old I am and that I don't like this kind of stuff. But um, it's called markhelpern.org. And the, right in the front, there's, there's a, quite an elucidation of what you're talking about. But the, in sum, um, when I was 20, uh, I was in the British Merchant Navy. And I was on a ship called the MS Stonepool. And the, uh, uh, some of the crew, or someone in the crew, told me the story of a ship called the Royal George, which was an English warship which sank 
in the 18th century. And uh, when they when they pulled it up and they salvaged it, they discovered that there were hundreds of women on the ship. Who, you know, they were essentially what they were were court and uh, or maybe family members. I don't know, but it was very unusual. It was a scandal. And 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 as I was crossing the the Atlantic at one point, uh, I I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to write a a novel or a novella about a ship in which the all full of men, just men, and that what they're thinking about is the women that they left behind, that they were in love with, that they those women uh, essentially are the reason that we that we are what we are. And uh, I was 20. I tried to do it when I got home. I was uh, in the, the little piece that I have on my web in the snows of a Boston winter. I, I tried to write that novel, but I couldn't because I didn't know enough. I was 20 years old. However, uh, after, after what? Sea service, air service, infantry service, uh, marriage, divorce, another marriage, uh, which thank God has lasted for beyond. You know, <laughs> 45 years now, raising children, um, the death of the parents, making a living, uh, and even uh, the, uh, uh, the, the very deplorable um, involvement in, in the Dante and hell of, of, of politics inside the Beltway in Washington. I had perhaps enough experience to write this book which involves that that kind of thing. It's not about young people. It's about, and the book is a middle-aged people, really, who have some seasoning and some and some experience. Um, and middle-aged people now could be my children, but nonetheless, uh, it's it's it focused on that that cohort, and it has, I hope. You know, wisdom that I may have gained in those intervening years, in the 56 years since I stood at the helm of the long here, going across the ocean. The, the, the subtitle of the book is A Sea Story, A War Story, A Love Story. Yeah. Your books are. Uh, traditionally, uh, traditionally hard, hard to, to uh, pin uh, down genre-wise. And I, I love that about your books. You're not afraid to tell a, a sweeping story that includes all of uh, the human condition, as it were. Um, in, in our, uh, where, we, where we find um, publishing today, we seem to be hyper fixated on genre and uh, staying within certain genre conventions. Um, how do you think in terms of publishing today and does that affect the types of stories that you write or want to write? Does the, the hyper fixation on genre and the uh, kind of categorizing uh, and putting authors in their little buckets, does that affect how you think of stories? Well, you hit it on the head, you see, because this is the thing. A novel, and I was brought up in the, in the age-old traditions of, of, of literature from the romance, which nothing to do with romantic and nothing to do right. with even the romantic movement in the 19th century, but rather goes all the way back to Adam, to the Bible and before the Bible, and a great pattern of literature in which you have a, a particular set of 
I guess, conventions um, that that dictate everything. You know, Dante is that, uh, Tom Jones and, and uh, Hamlet, everything. There are a number of things. I, it would take me half an hour to go through them all. But in short, the novel is about many, many things, not boxed and contained, or as Shakespeare would say, cabin and confined, as uh, uh, I believe uh, Beth said. Um, it's, it has to be about a lot of things. And these days, what you have in publishing, and it's not just these days, it's been for quite a long time, you have what, what I would call gimmick books. Um, they're almost like magazine articles extended, like New Yorker magazine articles with, with simply extended. And, 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 and what they are is, for example, someone might get the idea, well, I'm going to write a book about a... Um, uh, uh, a, a 19th century tobacco trader who gets a baboon, see? And then they hang the hook on that, and, and, and the whole thing is, is, is based on that, on that uh, premise, on that uh, gimmick. So um, that's not what a novel really should be like. A novel should be, uh, first of all, it should take a lot, in my view, take great chances, chances of affirmation. In other words, things that you strongly believe in you write about what you believe in. You write about what you love, uh, and and you don't do so uh, in a, in, a, in, a, in a I believe you should, should not do so in a fashionable sense. In other words, now we have uh, novels, and they're they're all about I don't know race, sex, diversity, um, the environment, whatever the the political uh, atmosphere is of the day. People rush to fill that void and to sell books because because that's what's people are talking about i may not sell any books but, i mean i do sell books a lot of them, but the book may not sell i don't know because it isn't of the moment but it's anything but of the moment it but i hope that it would that it would last because it's in the tradition of things that, that do last so is that yeah. an answer? Absolutely. Um, you you mentioned the New Yorker, and you uh, uh, wrote for the New Yorker for quite a while, and you wrote yeah. short fiction, and you published several collections of short fiction, and also essays um, and different forms. Do you, you approach short fiction differently than you approach a novel? And when you first get an idea for a story, do you have an idea whether this is going to be a piece of short fiction or whether this is going to eventually be a novel? How do you get a feel for when a story idea comes to you? How to pursue it? That's a great question. It really is. Uh, first of all, you know, I started with the New Yorker, believe it or not, in 1963. I mean, that really takes me. <laughs> and, uh, it took me. It took me six years. I, I was 1963. I was. Um, but of course, I had been offered a two-book contract for Simon & Schuster eight years before, so I had the chutzpah to actually apply to the New Yorker, send them stories. So I started sending them stories and finally published, uh, began publishing them in 1969, when I was still in college, um, here in college. And, um, and, I, and I had a run with them for about 20 years, but then Mr. Sean, who was the famous editor, died. And uh, this is what happens in publishing and magazines and in, in everything. When, the, when the, the person who runs it dies, they bring in a different cast of characters, and there's a, there's a different emphasis. I only had 20 years with them. 
Um, but to answer your question more specifically, um, I much prefer writing short stories to, to, to novel. Uh, I think short stories, are, I think that I can do it better than novel. My much better, whatever quality that. That's, that's number one. Number two, uh, I, I think it's a superior art form. However, make a living to go forward in the world, it turns out in, in, in the period in which in the last uh, century in which I've been actively working, um, the way to do it is via novel. Um, that's, that's, just, that's just the way it was. This book is, will be, I believe, and I, of course I could drop that tomorrow, I don't know, 76 years old, I still do things that are very strenuous that might kill me. If I continue to live, then this book will be my second to last novel. And one more that I've done now. I actually finished it. I, 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 do, I go through about 12 drafts for every, every book. Oh, I'm on draft, uh, I don't know, uh, three or four now. So I have a way to go before I finish. But that will be my probably my last novel. But what I really would love to do is to is to just write story. Uh, that's that's why been my my delayed and belated retirement. Um, I, should, I could have retired. I mean, some people. <laughs> that's already twenty one years ago for me. I'm retired. Crazy. I should. But when I do, that's what I'll do. I hope to be, have a lot less stress and just write stories because that's my first love. Um, and and by the way, when I first started writing stories, I, just as I mentioned, you know. Funny uh, on, on that, um, I, I was unable to extend it into a novel. I, I, I couldn't. I didn't have enough to, to write about. But I did. I did have. I did have uh, ability. I think. I mean, at least being able to make something beautiful that was very small. Uh, but in, in extending it, I didn't know enough, so I couldn't extend it. That's uh, that's what. By the way. Yeah, if, if since we're on this, this, this subject, um, I, I in in the uh, in that piece on my website that you referenced before, uh, one thing that I said is that uh, I discovered uh, that I, I and not just a question of discovery, but I came to the belief that uh, a novel can have lots of action in it. This novel, instance, has a great deal of actions. It's, it's, it's Story, a naval story. You focus in on the cover. You see that wonderful, um, and that's not uh, because you, you mentioned that we are, we are um, things in in genre categories. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. it, 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 great literature can have a great deal of action, you know, like the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, right? And, uh, right. Yeah, and, and and then I mentioned that when I came home. I, I then discovered, uh, I then hadn't read Pushkin's uh, book called uh, which is tremendously suspenseful, great action, terrific action. And yet it's Pushkin, you know, beautiful writing. So you can, you can have uh, uh, action and, and uh, goings on and, and uh, stuff in the tradition of, of, uh, Melville and uh, uh, Homer and Christian, et cetera. Uh, and that can still be literary. 
uh, and you can combine it with um, language, with 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 um, beautiful language, met metaphor, simile, and sound, uh, and not neglect those things. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that it it can be like a combination of of Tom Clancy without the nonsense of you know the atom bomb going off over the Champs Elysees <laughs> or the merchandise market, um, unless the hero you know swings on a, on a goes like Tom Cruise goes on a motorcycle from one building to another. That's that's nonsense, really. When you think about it, and that will not last. That's just gimmicks, special effects. Have great action uh, mixed with beautiful writing. That's that's what anyway. That's what I tried to do with this book. I, we've got a great question from Ken, uh, who says your stories take thrilling and unexpected turns, but I never got lost. You seem to have an internal meter that knows just when to pull it in. How do you know what to keep and what to throw out? So uh, I, I guess this is, you know, would come to the second, third uh, draft that you mentioned earlier when after you get that first draft out, do you then take a critical eye back over the story structure? And like you said, how do you determine what is essential to stay and what could be better served by pulling it out? That's a great question. Um, when I was young, I used to love to write and I didn't like to edit. With every passing year, I like editing more and more until. I actually like editing a lot better than writing, which is really weird. I like writing too, but uh, <laughs> editing is is more satisfying and more fun. And you actually you can do, you can in, in a sense you can almost do more in 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 with good editing than you can when you initially. That's part of the reason that I do twelve draft. And the other thing is, you know, how do you know what to leave in and what not to leave in? You see those books behind me. That's training. That's training. Mm -hmm. Because from a very early age, I just read and read and read and read and read. And then I had, unfortunately, a very uh, rigorous formal education. Uh, in the, I, I, I probably went to every prestigious university in the world. <laughs> I really did. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I, went to, I went to Harvard College, Harvard Graduate School, Oxford, Princeton, Columbia. And Stanford. Uh, I mean, it's just it, it, you tried to hit them all, time. didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I tried to hit them all, and, uh, uh, and, that, and it was painful. It was really painful, and I was not made for it. And 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 I didn't get along with anybody or anything. But uh, so thank God I've left that behind. But it did have some effect in that it, you know, I think of a branding iron in the old west. They beat it up, and it's all red, and then they brand the cow. Well, this cow was branded with all those those uh, books back there. And that's the model that you have. If you look at great literature, then and in, if you internalize it. If if if, it's, if you have the rigorous enough, if rigorous enough training and involvement with it. So my advice would be to read and to edit, edit. There's a uh, there's a point, however, where it just and then here's another thing. When other people, uh, that is editors, copy editors, um, whoever involved in the, in, the, in the book, are putting in their two cents, 
that's good. Have a good person once, one go around. Once, and it's the same, by the way, with political speech writing. You write this, this speech, and I've done this, unfortunately, for uh, some presidential candidates. Uh, never took any money for it, not one penny. I did it. Uh, you write it and you share it with the candidate. The minute someone else starts to put their two cents in, not you forget it. It will be ruined. Same thing with the edit, what they call the editorial process to the public. You have a good editor, let the editor give you advice and make a, a line editing too. That just doesn't account, account for copy editing. Copy editing is more technical. You know, it's just spelling your punctuation if, if you've got it wrong and, and fact checking, whatever. But in terms of line editing, language, and the overall. One go around from an external person, more than that, and it, it will be ruined. That's how I would work anyway. But for yourself, as many editings as you want. But when you feel, if you do get to the point where you feel that it, it, it hurts and there's, you don't know whether, you, if it's not clear what should be done, yeah, because, because you can't get to the point where uh, if you look at a, a sentence or a paragraph, you don't know immediately what would make it much better. And you shouldn't. And you shouldn't. Oh, I do it. And it takes me usually, all told, about 12 go around. And that includes feedback from you know, the editor and the copy editor. But um, uh, that, that's, that's part of the key. And you can't necessarily do this if you're young. You see, a young person is not always suited for, for, for that kind of activity. For instance, when I was in graduate school, my, my advisor, who then became a, a very friend, family friend, dead, he's been dead for almost 20 years, um, said to me, you can't understand this because you're not old enough. And I, I saw, you know, I thought I was uh, stuff. I was there with Harvard Graduate School and I'm going to do a PhD, uh, which I never got. And uh, I guess I went into the army and I, you know, I, then I got married and I was there. But he said, you, you can't, but that's ridiculous because I'm so smart. I'm so terrific. Here I am. I could understand anything. No, 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 no. You have to live before you understand certain things the way it is. You may understand it in theory. That doesn't cut it. He was absolutely right. So. When I give advice about editing, there's a limit when you're young to how much you can edit because your 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 is is not yet um, suited to that. But it will be if if you can manage to stay alive. <laughs> well, that's the trick, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's part of it. It's part yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, Speaking of that, um, because you do have novels that are well loved and that have garnered a a massive following, Winter's Tale is a, is a perfect example because you published that in 1983, uh, and now you have uh, you know, almost well, I guess 
this year is four decades um, of, of life experience after that. Do you ever think about novels that you've written and published uh, previously and think uh, on those in terms of the life experience that you do have now? And if you could go back and change a work, and if so, how would you approach it? I, I'm sure that I would change it radically. Uh, maybe not the, the overall structure of might, uh, but particularly writing. Now, here's a funny thing. I have never read anything that I've written after it's been published. So I, you know, I guess some people do. I don't do that. I, I the last time I read Winter's Tale was in the year before it was published. And I went through the last around on it. So that was with 40 some odd years, 41 years, uh, 41 years. Yeah. And uh, so I never looked back in that respect. I'm sure that I would, I would, uh, in terms of line editing, anyway, uh, if not the structure. And also, you know, I think this, you don't always have to think that you're, that the book written are so great, you know, I think, well, that wasn't that one was not so good. Um, I'm not particularly fond of Winter's Tale, as I remember it. Uh, I, I prefer other things, particularly shorter fiction that that I read. That's okay. I mean, it's not up to me, is it? Uh, but for instance, you know, um, when when um, when art was scientized in the 19th century. Essentially, when science triumphed because it could do all kinds of amazing things, you know, we eventually got flu, we went to the moon, we cured diseases, et cetera, et cetera. So science jumped into the catbird's feet, and art largely started to imitate it. See, it became more rational than than emotional. Uh, it became uh, more studied than than. And, and impulsive. The romantics were actually reacting to the scientization of art and the, and the banishment of myth and, uh, and, and emotion in, in literature and in painting, etc. But um, when when that happened, you got all these artists, every type, who were explaining everything to everybody. Notice that you know the architects will say, "Well, this echoes this, and that echoes that, and that shows this, that this, this is a." But you shouldn't have to explain yourself. Uh, it should be apparent. Why? Because it should be written in the language of nature. It should be written in the language that we all understand because we're subject to the same constraints. And, and you can put uh, uh, rules and laws. For, for example, you can't, uh, if you don't have enough, uh, a certain amount of oxygen, you die. There's a higher, a certain high temperature. You die if the temperature is too low. You die if you don't get certain nutrition. You you, you die. You can't. You you are limited in terms of your uh, muscular power. You're limited in terms of your speed. You're you're limited in terms of how far you can see, or what parts of the the uh, the spectrum, the, the magnetic spectrum, you can actually see. A bee can see much more than we can. It can see other colors, etc. Um, these limitations. Uh, are part of what make our humanity, and, and they they give us uh, 
and it invents a set of rules and a set of principles by which we can judge things that don't have to be explained in theory. You see, so what what what, what I'm trying to say is that you're, you you when in writing a book, this is what I do, and I imagine it in, in, in the past. You rely upon that. You try to to make um, the most beautiful and true representation of what you know, rather than moving according to a set of uh, of rules that were essentially derivative of the scientization of art. And that's why, uh, for instance, don't I'm not crazy about the modern uh, criticism because it's it's formulaic and theoretical, uh, and it's it, 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 it's abandoned the very I could use the word felicitous and wonderful uh, rules of nature we all have within us, uh, and they're accessible to everybody. We're all subject. To I don't know why I'm saying that, but. It, <laughs> Mark, um, one thing that I love to ask people is um, that I am fascinated by where stories begin. And, and, it, and I don't mean in the trite sense that, that people ask authors, where do you get your ideas from? Um, because ideas are everywhere. Uh, but there is something about that idea that stands out from the rest and and just won't allow you to let it go. Um, in one moment, uh, a story like the ocean and the stars does not exist. Uh, but then either an idea comes to you, uh, and a lot of times it's the what if question, what, what if this happened or what if that happened? And then you start casting the story in your mind. Uh, and then in, in one sense of the term, the story does exist, and it's your job as the writer to dig it out and to polish it off and to, uh, to bring the story out of the, the miry clay that it exists in. And, and that's the job of the writer um but what is that moment of creation like for you and is it typical or is every project different well uh, i i i've been asked that before and uh usually the answer i give is this that um uh well for instance for this book uh i know exactly when it started it started when that the uh the british seaman who was my crew member told me the story of the royal george uh, that's what that's what started it, and then of course it went through many incarnations and changes. Uh, at that point, there ISIS didn't exist; they weren't taking hostages. Uh, shortly after that, no one was hijacking planes or taking hostages. We hadn't uh, America hadn't fought in the Middle East since World War II, um, and and over time, but that was those were added to it in layers of accretion, but. What I usually say is this, something will occur to me. Usually it's the last line of a story or a book. The last line is usually a very beautifully constructed in terms of language. It's beautiful. One line occurs to me. And then I know that that's the last line of whatever it is, the novel, the book, the short story, whatever. And then... It's like if you take a stone and you throw it uh, into a lake, it, uh, maybe, I don't know, throw it far anymore, but 
it lands a hundred feet. I think I couldn't even throw a hundred feet, 75 feet away into the water, bunk in the water. And then you dive into the water and you swim to get the stone. And that from the point of the shore to the stone, that's the beginning of the book to the end of the book. We're working toward that one line. And that's your, that's what gives you the discipline, the subject, the feel, the, the, uh, the, the spirit of the book. The one line at the end. I mean, that's how I do it. I've always done that. Um, and in, in this book, I had, that, that worked that way. I mean, the original idea came in the 20 with the, uh, for the book itself. The line hurt me. Um, and you can, well, I'll tell you what, grab the book, grab the book that's right next to you, read the, the very last line. The very last, the very last, last line. line. Yes. <laughs> When she reached the second step from the bottom, he moved toward her. She took his hand and she jumped down like a young girl. Yep. <laughs> it, took, it took 500 pages to get to that. And that's, uh, and the point is you, that you love that woman who did that. And throughout the whole book, I felt that and, and worked toward it. Uh, her name is uh, Katie. Um, That's amazing. Um, you said that you had this idea for a long time, and you felt like you weren't ready to write this book. And you, you said on your website that like, there were uh, uh, things that you needed to accumulate uh, along the way so that you would be capable of writing this book. How did you know that it was now time to tell the story? I, I don't know. Um, but I, I actually, I wanted to do it um, even before. Uh, I wanted to do it many books ago. I just didn't get around to it. So when I finished the last book, which is called Paris in the Present Tense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then, then I say, okay, well, now I can write this one. Um, but and by the way, uh, in, you mentioned how the books were uh, different. And, and they, they really are different. In this book, it's about a, uh, I hate to say it's about, because it's about many, many things, but a whole ton of things, interviewers say, the whole, the, everything but the kitchen. But it, 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 the main character is a, a naval officer and, um, who is of Dutch extraction, Hudson Valley, Dutch extraction. Uh, I grew up in the Hudson Valley, and I knew People like that. Uh, I'm not but by any means. I, in my school, we were taught the anthem of the Dutch West India Company. I'm not kidding. I mean, that's how old I am. Uh, but so he's a, a Dutch descent, descended Navy captain from the Hudson Valley. His name is Rensselaer. And the, the, the female protagonist is named Katie Farrar. She's a Virginian. And it about it has a lot of uh, naval action and political action, et cetera, et cetera. The last book, Paris in the Present Tense, was about a Jewish cellist in Paris. Uh, the, the book before that was about uh, somebody in the garment district in New York and an heiress. You can, you can simplify it. I mean, that was a big, long book and a lot of 
and then uh, uh, I wrote a book called uh, the previous novel was uh, Freddie and Frederica, a, a, a sort of a Mark Twain type story um, about uh, of Wales. Um, and the, excuse me, excuse me, nothing. Princess of, of Wales, uh, and then before that was before that, uh, uh, and proof case about a, uh, a, 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 a what was he? He was, was also from the Hudson Valley, but he ended up in Brazil. He robbed a bank, ended up in Brazil, and he was talking. That was after what no reviewer understood. This. Oh, ridiculous. Book by. Have you ever heard of Tolos Fabo? Yes. 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 Okay. That's good. Uh, and he, he wrote a book um, called The Confessions of Zeno. About he's, he's an, an Italian from uh, I believe from Friuli or anyway from Fiume, you know, which is now in uh, Yugoslavia. Well, it's not even Yugoslavia anymore. I don't know where the hell it is, but uh, <laughs> he. This Confessions of Zeno is about a guy who's obsessed with cigarettes. He's addicted to cigarettes, et cetera. And so, and Proof Case, which I wrote, I don't know, going on 30 years, believe it or not, um, was about this guy in Brazil who detests coffee. Uh, and he has a reason for it. And it, in the book, it, it's, it's explained. Um, and then before that was a soldier of the Great War, about an Italian soldier in World War One, And before that was Winter before that was, I mean, the point is that people, what people want, unfortunately, uh, although not unfortunately for John Gertram and Tom Clancy, is they want a repetition of the same book each time. And so if, if you write a book and someone says, oh, this is really great. I really like this book because I enjoyed it so much. And then you come out with the next book and they want it to be exactly the same with a slight variation. And if you don't do that, they say, he betrayed me. Uh, I just got let me let me deal with this. Um, sure. Okay. Do you know what that was? That was a spam call. All all the time. They asked for Jerry. So this has been now for about three years. Jerry, whoever the hell he was, the deadbeat who gave our telephone number. And we get calls all the time from the Philippines and they say, Hello, is this Jerry? And I say, there's no Jerry who ever lived here. Take us off your list, whatever. My wife reports it to whatever authorities are. It doesn't matter. It's been years they torture us. Uh, can I tell wow. you a story? Wow. We do have yes. enough time. Yes. Okay. When I lived in Brooklyn, uh, in Brooklyn Heights, uh, when I was first married to, to my wife, my second wife, um, and uh, we lived in a fifth floor walk-up. It was uh, uh, Michiko Kakutani. Remember her from the New York Times? Mm-hmm. She was a young journalist. She came to interview me there and walked in. The first thing she did was uh, criticize the uh, furniture. We saved all our money. Um, my wife is a lawyer. She was a, a big-time lawyer, but we saved all our money because we knew we had to save it because the future would be you know, a problem. You lay in your seed corn, right? So we live very modestly. And uh, she, she just criticized the furniture. She was very unpleasant. Anyway, um, I had a landline, and I, I was sitting there in the apartment writing Winter's Tale. 
And it was, sometimes it would be freezing. Sometimes it would be really hot because we were under our roof. And all day long, one, one, in one period, the phone would, would, would ring. I, I'd pick it because there was no, uh, we don't even now have voicemail or answering machine. Hello. And the Board of Education, which was nearby, had, was advertising for an assistant principal uh, for an elementary school, more than one. And they, and they put an ad in the, in the newspapers that if you're interested in this position, call this number. And it was my number. So I was getting all these calls from people. So I went to the Board of Education and I said, look, you put this ad in and it, uh, it has my number. You've got to do something about that. And they said, oh, there's nothing we can do. And I said, well, are you going to run it again? They said, yeah, we're going to run it. And I said, well, call, a, call an ad agency and have them change it. And, no, we can't do that. It would be too, much too expensive. I said, but you're not even getting the calls. And they said, well, we're getting something. Um, I said, but I'm getting the call. Anyway, they wouldn't do anything. I was really angry about that. So I got all these calls. And the people would say, I, I, didn't, I answered it and I said, hello, Board of Education. And the people would say, may I speak to Dr. So-and-so, who was the person that was in And I said, just one moment, please. And I switched. And so this is Dr. So-and-so. And they would say, I'm interested in applying for this position. And I would talk them through it. And I would say, you know, we listed in the paper when the interviews are. But because this is an elementary school uh, position, we're interested in seeing how imaginative you are. Because you're dealing with young children and we want to stimulate their imagination. So the chancellor has decided that for these interviews, when you show up, we want you to do the best you can to be dressed as an owl. And so <laughs> you get it. <laughs> so, and the only reason I say that is because this phone rang in the middle of, of our uh, conversation here. So all these all these uh, people showed up dressed as owls. Uh, I presume that I wasn't there at the board of education. <laughs> oh my goodness, oh that's amazing. amazing. We've got another uh, great question, uh, Mark. You talk about being real and true, yet your work waltzes well outside, well outside the lines what we might call realism. Thank goodness. What do you think about realism versus fantasy? And, and I would uh, like to tag on that. When you get a story idea, do you know from the beginning that this story is going to venture into like Winter's Tale uh, territory? Or how do you know in the writing, does it just dictate to you that, that this needs to be a more fantastical type story? That's also a great question. Um, tell you what, um, I, when I was, uh, see how was I? I don't know, it was 1972. And uh, I was in the, uh, the Israeli army and I read uh, 100 Years of Politics. And I hated it. I just hated it. And then I got the, I was awarded for the World Fantasy Award. And I tried very hard to turn it down, but they wouldn't let me because <laughs> uh, I don't like fantasy. Now, people will say, what, what, are you crazy? You, you wrote, Winter's Tale, and you say you don't like I don't like fantasy. Here's my question: um, Is is the Inferno, is, uh, the you know, the Divine Comedy, the Comedia, 
Is that fantasy? You would call that fantasy? I wouldn't call it fantasy. Is uh, Virgil uh, fantasy? I, I wouldn't call that fantasy either. Um, this is the, the, in the, in the great literary tradition, which goes back to the beginning of time. We are not necessarily bound by the laws of physics. And it has to do also with, with, with religion, you know, in, in the way that religion has been pretty much biased from, from fiction. Uh, in, with, with religion, we are allowed to entertain things such as in, in, the, in the Bible, uh, you know, pillars of, of fire, or resurrections, uh, all kinds of things that are not constrained by the laws of physics. And so, there is a there's a fine line, there's a fine distinction between fantasy, and I can't necessarily define wh- wh- where where that is, but I can feel it, and uh, the allowances that are given to you if you hew to the ancient traditions of literature, pre-scientific, in other words, the, the way that religion does. Oh, yeah, I don't like fantasies. I don't like. Um, uh, gnomes and elves and uh, and things like that and dragons and uh, whatever. Although Dante has dragons called Geryon. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't, but commonly it's called fantasy. I don't like. And a lot of people say, when they meet me, will say, I can't believe that, but it's true. It's true. Um, so that, that's the, that's the, the answer. The answer is if you, if you look closely and whatever, if you, you and right from doom to direct one to it. But if you look at what I've written, you can see that very much in the ancient tradition, the the, the writers uh, and the and the bard, you know, Homer even departed from the the physical world, the constraints of the physical world. And you could say in order to make a point, you know, metaphorical or whatever. But maybe that's the difference. Maybe the difference is this. If you have something like the Bible uh, or Dante, they are doing that to make a point, not as actual, not to be necessarily believed. For instance, uh, if you look at the the, uh, Commedia, um, I don't think anyone who, who actually read it ever, it wasn't intended to be believed. He actually descended in hell and was committed by Virgil. You see, uh, it's an allegory. There's a difference between fantasy and allegory. Fantasy is let's drop your 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 objections uh, and just believe it and go with it and be taken up with the story, et cetera, et cetera. With a, a literary allegory, you don't necessarily believe it. It's just illustration. Maybe that's the difference. Excellent answer. Excellent answer. Um, Mark, on your website, uh, for each of your works, uh, you have um, a great section where you uh, have about the book, reviews, excerpts, backstory, where you talk a little bit about kind of what the, the thoughts behind the beginning of the story was. And, and then you've got a thing called beginnings. And uh, for all of them, or at least all of them, uh, you have... Uh, a photo of a handwritten uh, beginning of a manuscript. Do you write your manuscript in longhand? Uh, and, and how has your uh, writing 
changed over the course of your career? Um, has technology affected the way that you approach storytelling? And uh, you know, what, what's your process like? Well, um, when I first began, uh, I, I'm, I guess you'd say I was OCDC. No, no, no not OCDC. <laughs> OCD. <laughs> OCD. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I guess I am, and my wife says I am, uh, and I'm just very neat, always have been. I used to clean up after my parents. When I stay in a hotel, I clean the room before the maid comes in the hotel. Even I carry usually a bottle of uh, Windex and a little tiny thing, especially now if you fly, I'd be one of the poor houses. I clean the mirror in the bathroom and, and I wash the soap dish and I do that because that's, I believe that things should be. Uh, organized and tidy. So when I was very young, when I was, when I began, I always used a uh, Mont Blanc fountain pen because I grew up using fountain pens. When I was in school, we used them. They, they did have ballpoints, but they were wax ink. They weren't the uh, rollerball. And they, and they were really crappy to write with. So we all used fountain pens. And my first books were written and found very, very neatly, beautifully done. If you look at in that website of uh, Refiner's Fire, you'll see that it's just very, very nice and neat, et cetera. If you then look at the later books, anything but. Why? Because as I've gotten older, I've developed a tremor. It's called essential tremor. It's what happens when you get old. And my handwriting is completely uh, um, but the process is, is, has always been the same which is always write it with um, I wrote I was once a uh, for six months a um, uh, an internet column, columnist for the Wall Street Journal I was a columnist for the Wall Street Journal in the print edition. and then when they came out with this thing called Opinion Journal which was on, online they said we, we'd like you to also do this I tried it for six months. I didn't like it. The first column I think that I wrote was called Lament for Paper and Ink. And I think there's magic in paper and ink. Uh, and and that, that's, uh, that's how I work. I always have uh, first draft is in the pen. And now I use uh, rollerball pens because of my camera and do that. And it's not neat at all, as you can see, if you look at those things. Um, but then I do um, have colored pens that go over it. The first, first draft is with a black pen. The second draft is also with a black pen. Strangely enough, I don't know why I do this, but I do it. It's, it's the uh, third draft is with a red pen. Fourth draft is with a uh, green pen, a blue pen. And the fifth draft is with green pen. At that point, that's five drafts on the same, usually on the same paper. Then I put it on a word process. Uh, and then I do the subsequent draft on the, on the word processor. I got a word processor in 1981. It was one of the first ones to do it. In publishing, they didn't really go to word processing for another 15 or 20 years. I was always, I, believe it or not, I was pushing them. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing because it, it got too much, you know, with all the new technology. And but 
but uh, that's that's how it, how it how it how it do it. So everyone is wants to be writing. There is such a pleasure in writing with your hand and and on a, a, a piece of paper. It, for me, anyway, it's been my life, and I love it. One thing that's interesting is in the modern writing era, uh, if that first draft is done in a word processor, the subsequent drafts are usually edits of that originally typed manuscript. So you're not actually writing the book as you are um, just editing, line editing. Yeah, well, that's... But the way you do it, you're actually rewriting the book, which is coming up. No, I'm not. I'm not. Okay. It's edi- it's editing, but very okay. savage. Ed- I mean, really extensive editing. Gotcha. But no, I don't. I don't sit down with a blank piece of paper and then start rewriting it. I wouldn't do that. That would uh, it would take for it would take ten years, more than two, twenty years to do. <laughs> it's 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 when I say draft, I mean going thoroughly over it. I understand. I understand. Gotcha. gotcha. The new book the is new called book is The Oceans and the Stars, a sea story, a war story, a love story. It publishes in October, but we're going to put links to it in the show notes where you can pre-order it now and go ahead and reserve your copy. Uh, Mark, this has been so much fun uh, chatting and, and uh, going over your career. Thank you so much for taking time to join us. If people want to dig into all of the amazing work that you have accumulated, uh, is your website the best place for people to, uh, to find all of that collected in one place? It's not not Wikipedia because it's 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 well, it's so many mistakes and ridiculous. The website is a good summation. It's not an active website. I don't participate in it. I don't. I don't put new things in it. I just. It's like a reference. And I have a bibliography there, and I have each book is laid out better if they if they can, or they want to. But yes, I agree with you. This has been a lot of fun, and thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Um, we will uh, put links uh, in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find your website as well as to pre-order the book. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.